So we'll start by reading through the text, and indeed, as Tom said, uh, the plan is to, to go from verses 13, uh, in fact, to verse 20 today, um, but I, I will cover a bit of verse 12 as well uh, at risk of uh, rehashing some of what Tom has said. Uh, I think it'll set us up well for, for the text ahead. So read with me from John chapter 8, verses 12 to 20. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I come from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for, for this, your most holy word. And Lord, help us to revere it as such. Uh, not just as a, a perfect textbook, though in some regards it is that. Uh, not merely as a sacred text, though certainly it is that, Lord. But as the, the very words of the ever-living God uh, spoken to us, Lord. The, the mechanism with which... Uh, you vanquish the nations with which you convert souls and with which you uh, direct us in the conduct with which we ought to live. Help us to pay uh, so very close attention to it and to order our lives in accordance with what it says. Surely in doing the same there is great, great benefit to us and great glory to you. So may it be so we ask in your name. Amen. Uh, so, as is my custom, I've, I've split the, the text into uh, some sections, um, although it's not quite as clear-cut as some of the, the Proverbs messages I've done, which are largely uh, sequential. Uh, verses 12 to 13, uh, I think, detail uh, Jesus' phenomenal proclamation uh, and the Pharisees' subsequent phenomenal missing of that proclamation. Verses 13 to 14, along with verses 17 to 18, uh, there is a discussion of bearing witness, which personally I think is a, a delicious theological topic, yet I won't dive too much into the weeds today. Uh, verses 15 to 16, a discussion of judging. And verses 19 to 20, uh, with a sprinkling of verse 16, a discussion of the Trinity. Uh, as I say, there's a delightful theology of, of the law, of the Old Testament law, uh, though we'll go into that less today. Uh, as well as the Trinity, as well as uh, Jesus' testimony of being the light of the world, the one following him having the light of life. Uh, and so a very broad summary of the text of today uh, might be to say, don't be like the Pharisees as they present in this discussion with Jesus. Uh, and we say, don't be like the Pharisees often because they are often the, uh, the not good, the bad characters of, of the biblical narrative, uh, and yet it's appropriate to rehash that today. Uh, so let's jump right into the text, verses 12 to 13. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, 
I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. And thinking about how to address this, um, I present you with a, a fictional anecdote. Supposing that a, suppose rather that a, a man was uh, in the, the birthing suite uh, with his wife and his wife is, is laboring away uh, about to deliver their first child, uh, certainly a, a glorious, a wonderful, a, a significant moment in one's life. And yet suppose that very same man, uh, instead of uh, paying eager attention in the support and the leading, uh, the blessing of his wife, suppose he's much more engaged in a debate on some topic that he thinks is uh, important with one of the midwives. Uh, and for whatever reason, the midwife also thinks it's appropriate to engage in this debate with the man. Uh, and so engaged are they in this debate that in fact the, uh, the child is born and both the, the husband and the midwife uh, miss this glorious moment uh, which can never be rewound and recapped. In a somewhat similar way, uh, some similarities, it's not fully similar, uh, with, this is what we have with the Pharisees. The Pharisees have witnessed here the God of all, the Messiah, the very tip of the religion, the whole point of what they were supposedly doing, testify to wondrous things about himself and their immediate reaction is to try and, and beat him down. Essentially, they, they metaphorically spit in his face and reject what he has said or they totally miss the point at best. Their attempt to discredit Jesus is with regards to a, a certain part of the biblical law, which we'll get into later. Uh, but this doesn't even apply to Jesus. And what's more, Jesus has already taken care of this particular issue in the passage which James read for us in, in John chapter 5. I am the light of the world, says Jesus. And the one who follows him won't be in the darkness of sin and worldliness, but will have the light of life. Let us consider this statement of Jesus in verse 12 in order to appreciate just how much the Pharisees missed in their rejection of him. Jesus, this God-man standing in front of them, is the very source of light and life. Any other supposed source is at best uh, deriving that light and life from him is, is a, a mirror to point back to Jesus but he, Jesus, is the very source of it, the standard, the tippity-top. And so there are, needless to say, two component parts to Jesus' statement. He is the light and he is the life. And let's look at them both uh, with a bit more detail. Light is the Greek word phos, uh, from which we get like phosphorescence, the light. And it can literally mean light, uh, such as the thing emitted by the thing you switch on at the wall. Uh, but metaphorically, it relates to, to truth and its knowledge, together with spiritual purity associated with the same. 1 John 5 uh, verses 1 to 7 is illustrative, and turn there if you will, but I'm going to jump straight into it. Uh, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, 
as he is in the light, as Jesus is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. And elsewhere in John's Gospel, chapter 3, verses 19 to 20, is also illustrative of the same point. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. As a random side note, there is an R.C. Sproul kids' book called The Lightlings, which is on this particular subject. I would commend it to you, especially those who have kids. Uh, but short and simple, if you walk in God's ways, you walk in the light. If you walk in the world or the devil's ways, because the two are synonymous, you walk in darkness. If you walk in sin, you walk in uh, misery, as indeed our catechism questions that we're going through with our children talk about at the moment. Light equals fellowship with God and his people. Darkness equals fellowship with the world and the devil. Make your choice. So light, and subsequently life. Uh, life is zoes in, this, uh, in the passage here and from the root uh, zoe. Uh, and so both here, the light of life, and in First John whereby Jesus is referred to as the word of life or life, uh, we have a conflation between having or walking in the light and having life. And my apologies to the ladies with which I said a similar thing on Wednesday, uh, but it turns out when you interpret the scriptures rightly, uh, you don't have to come up with a different thing every time you preach it. Uh, someone needs to tell the liberals. Uh, in line with this consideration, uh, this definition of, of life, take this. And this comes from one of my favorite sources, uh, being Blue Letter Bible. I think it's a useful Bible study tool. Uh, so consider this definition of life. Life real and genuine. A life active and vigorous. Devoted to God. Blessed in the portion even in this world of those who put their trust in Christ, but after the resurrection to be consummated by new ascensions, among them a more perfect body and to last forever. So life as we see it described in the scripture uh, speaks of life real and genuine, a life active and vigorous, but this devoted to God and so hence uh, separated from a mere earthly good existence. Uh, this earthly good existence is coupled with devotion to God, and hence it is truly good, truly life-giving, as opposed to merely pleasant in the moment. John 10.10 10 immediately came to mind. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Very different from the abundant life that Joel Osteen would preach to you. Uh, this is the abundant life that Christ offers. And we have this abundant life life inasmuch as we pursue and live in the light. And so Jesus says that those who follow him will have the light of life in verse 12. So the pithy, the short and sharp definition of all of this might be uh, that when we live in ways of truth, knowledge and purity or holiness, this is true, real, genuine and abundant life. The 
all of the world's riches. Even for argument's sake, if you literally had all of the world's riches uh, and could do whatever you want, whenever you want, uh, all of the rest, that supposed 80 years of pleasure is, is no kind of abundant life uh, compared to the abundant life that is offered in Christ and in those who live in ways of truth, knowledge, and purity. This is true, real, genuine, and abundant life. And even simpler, if you live in God's ways, you will have true life. Now, noting that the command to live in such ways goes out to all, the Pharisees had this command and this offer right before them. The very, the very source of this, this light, this, this pure, this true, this good way, which, which serves as a, a mechanism of bringing about this abundance of life. This very man is right before them. Just as we may have come in here today and uh, shaken one another's hands or given one another a hug or something, in that same proximity were the Pharisees to Jesus, the very source of light and life. And yet they entirely miss it. They reject him. Uh, or as I say, at best, uh, they miss the point. And so as I've said before, we might sort of say, well, how dumb are the Pharisees? How, how stupid were they? Uh, and yet doesn't the world and we at times do the same thing? When we choose uh, whatever it might be, the, the TV, the phone, the social media, the unwholesome scrolling, uh, and I'm not a proponent of all social media being evil, but uh, nonetheless, when we choose an unwholesome level of this instead of fellowship with the body. When we choose the Sunday lie-in instead of going to the church gathering or reading the word. When we choose to not speak with the person about Christ instead of sharing the gospel. When we deliberately avoid people and situations in which we know we will be rightly challenged instead of loving the reprover and the reproof that they offer. When our time is spent in ways which cause our sanctification to at best run on the spot or perhaps to decline instead of moving forward to greater and greater glory, uh, are these not similar to what the Pharisees did here? We have the source of light and life offered to us and yet we miss the point. We choose something which is uh, at best a pale comparison or probably at worst uh, is a detractor, is something not worth pursuing. And so ask yourself, what can you do uh, this week? Because we can come to such conclusions and we can go, yep, that was a stupid idea. But consider, what can you do this week in order to not engage in that kind of behavior? To be spending more time in prayer. And of course, it would be wonderful uh, to, as it were, go from zero to hero overnight, but what could you do to take a step in the right direction? To spend uh, five more minutes in prayer or in Bible reading as opposed to five minutes uh, on the phone doing whatever you might do with a view to increasing the same ratio. Don't assume that the pursuit of light and life is something that will just magically and automatically happen. Pursue it uh, and pursue him. And of course the uh, the Holy Spirit, as I've said before and will probably say again, uh, the Holy Spirit is the fuel uh, that, that leads us to burn in such a direction. And yet we must, in fact, take the step and use the fuel to go ahead 
Without pressing the accelerator, the fuel in your car is rather useless. Uh, so, to put all that in, into one point, don't be like the Pharisees, follow the source of light and life. Uh, verses 13 and 14 and 17 to 18. Let me recap them. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I came, come from or where I am going. Verse 17. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. So the phenomenal missing of the point by the Pharisees in verse 13 uh, is with reference to the testimony of two or three witnesses or just a plurality of witnesses, uh, which is seen in numerous sections throughout the scripture, among them uh, Numbers 35 verse 30, uh, which sort of doesn't really need context. It says, if anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses, but no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Deuteronomy 17, verse 6, another place which speaks of this law, uh, is speaking of a person who has uh, basically served idols or other gods. Uh, and it says, On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. And so the basic notion is that for the, the truth of a matter to be established, there must be a plurality of witnesses. Uh, and as a, uh, an irresistible rabbit hole to myself, uh, the next time you are in any kind of scenario which requires justice to go ahead uh, in this world uh, and you have to present or present it against you perhaps uh, evidence and a plurality of evidences when you have to go through this uh, due process, you can thank the Lord and the biblical worldview uh, for that being a thing. Uh, for without a God who is just, without a God who, who speaks of such things, there is no inherent reason in creation uh, to seek due process, to, to seek uh, the evidence of a plurality of witnesses to avoid uh, one liar causing the demise of another person. And so you can thank God in the biblical worldview or his biblical worldview uh, for those kind of establishments which exist within society. But to come back. Something wondrous has happened in front of the Pharisees and they are lost in their stubborn refusal to admit what is plainly true, that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Saviour, that Jesus is God. And in further demonstration of the extent of their sin, uh, the issue of Jesus' witness not being alone uh, has already been covered. And to recap just a portion which James read before, uh, in his debating with the Jews, Jesus says in John 5, verse 36, For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me, that the Father has sent me, and the Father who has sent me has himself borne witness about me. So the works bear witness about Jesus, and the Father himself has borne witness about Jesus. Jesus' witness is not alone. It is accompanied by at least these two things, and, and arguably by John the Baptist as well. So the truth of what he does, the truth of who he is, is plainly seen 
by all, witnessed to by his works. No mere man could do these kind of works. Witnessed to by his father, witnessed to by John the Baptist, and yet the Pharisees sinfully and stubbornly refused to accept the same, continuing in their blasphemy against him. Consider soberingly the everlasting and hellish fate of these individuals who, as I say, literally lived so close to Jesus that they could have shaken his hand, seen him with their own eyes, heard his voice with their own ears. So close were they that they could engage in such interactions with him, uh, and yet they reject the very source of light and life. They heard his voice, they saw his very form, and yet they rejected him. Uh, and this, though the, the proximity is certainly something to raise our eyes about, is not, not dissimilar to those who continue to reject God uh, in 2023 right here and now. For Romans 1, 18 to 20, says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their righteousness suppress the truth, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. This knowledge is, uh, is displayed for all to see. That, that word suppress the truth. Imagine you had a, a beach ball in a pool and you were trying to push it under the water. It takes active effort to put that beach ball under the water because it naturally wants to pop up. It's the same here. We have this knowledge of God, his existence and certain of his attributes, which is plainly seen by all who would bother to see it. Uh, and to avoid that truth is to put that beach ball, as it were, under the water. It takes active effort. In Psalm 19, it's very similar. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. And so the Pharisees had uh, the source of light and life right in front of them, and yet they rejected him. But similarly, uh, God, though not here on earth in the flesh, uh, is, is not hidden. He is certainly uh, in plain sight for all who would have eyes to see him. And so what is the hope uh, for such individuals who today continue to reject God? A sentiment we find in various places in the Bible uh, is seen in 2 Chronicles 15 verse 2, uh, where, speaking about God, Azariah says, If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. For those who would admit God's plain existence and who will uh, seek after him, who will ask for him uh, to reveal himself to them. Certainly, he can be found by them. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. If this plain truth, uh, which everybody sees, if you reject it, the Lord will forsake you also. But God commands all people everywhere to repent. And his existence is not unobvious. It is not a, an unreasonable request, an unreasonable command of God to tell everyone 
to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And so though the Pharisees had Jesus right in front of him and rejected him, nonetheless those who continue to reject Jesus today uh, are none, none less aware of his presence, none less aware that there is a creator God uh, with whom they will give an account. And so the second point, don't be like the Pharisees. Submit to the source of light and life. As a caveat, you won't catch him out on an errant technicality. And just as one further, very short thought on that one. Uh, in further display of Jesus' witness not being alone, uh, consider verse 14. I know where I came from and where I am going. Where did Jesus come from and where was he going? Broadly speaking, we might say uh, to heaven, not as a specific location, uh, but the place where the Godhead resides, as it were, to the place of absolute unity between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so by the very nature of the Godhead, the testimony of one person is tacitly or explicitly the testimony of the other two members also. Verses 15 and 16. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. Uh, and just by way of putting a potential thought to bed for the moment, I acknowledge that Jesus says here in those verses, I judge no one, and that subsequently in verse 26, if you've read ahead, he says, I have much to say about you and much to judge. Uh, I propose to, uh, to navigate that one, that apparent though not actual contradiction, uh, next week. And so if that's in your brains, put it to bed for the moment. Uh, we'll go through it next week. So what does Jesus mean by saying, I judge no one? Well, perhaps one useful way in, in answering the same question is to compare uh, with the Pharisees. Jesus says of them that you judge according to the flesh. Your assessment, in this case, of Jesus is in accordance with human, fleshly, worldly ways and is, in fact, in a manner of speaking, a solo witness, bereft of true light and hence bereft of the truth. And then you have Jesus. I judge no one. Jesus by himself makes no assessment of anyone. And yet even if he does, his judgment or his assessment is true. Why? I am the one who bears witness about myself and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. And so once again, because of the nature of who Jesus is, a member of the triune Godhead, his judgment, his assessment, his witness is tacitly or explicitly uh, the testimony of the other two members because there is no disunity within the Godhead. Or put positively, there is absolute and perfect and complete unity within the Godhead, uh, which just as a side thought it is an amazing thing to consider. Even within uh, the best of marriages, uh, there is it's not even in the same ballpark as the kind of unity that exists within the Godhead. And so that being a very short point, the point, don't be like the Pharisees, judge in accordance with the source of light and life. Don't make uh, worldly, surface-level, skin-deep judgments. Rather, judge, make assessments in accordance with the source of light and life.
And so the last section before we uh, conclude, verses 19 or 16 and 19 to 20. Verse 16 says, Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. Verse 19. They said to him, Therefore, where is your Father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. And so that previous discussion of judging leads well uh, into this final section, uh, verses 16, 19, and 20, or really just verses 16 and 19. Uh, so within these verses, uh, verse 16 and 19, we have uh, two references, I say, in uh, reference to the Trinity. Uh, and just by way of recap, because uh, though it's covered knowledge, it's nonetheless good to, to remember uh, Trinity Theology 101, and I'm using numerous of the questions that I, I catechize my children with. Are there more gods than one? No, there is only one God. Wrong answer, Mr. Silas. <laughs> Are there more gods than one? No, there is only one God. In how many persons does this one God exist? In three persons. What are they? The Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost, or modern language, the Holy Spirit. And we see this among other places, perhaps most poignantly put in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, where Jesus, in giving that great commission, says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Name there is singular, and yet three persons are named. Three persons, yet one God. With that as recap, verse 16, uh, Jesus says, I and the Father who sent me. This uh, sending by the Father of Jesus uh, seems to be more than just uh, something which uh, one person does to another. Uh, rather, there seems to be an equality implied in what Jesus says. And this is what might be considered uh, a display of the, the economic trinity. The economic trinity being what God and hence the members of the trinity do, their function, as opposed to the ontological trinity, using big words and I love it, uh, what God and hence the members of the trinity are. So Jesus in his function as the God-man Messiah was sent by the Father. And this done voluntarily and willingly because once again there is no disunity but rather perfect unity within the Godhead. But he is nonetheless, coming to the ontological trinity, he is nonetheless eternal God, co-equal with the Father and Holy Spirit. Uh, but here, functionally, he is described uh, as the one being sent by the Father, serving that function. And verse 19, if you knew me, you would know my Father also. This being uh, a definite reference to Jesus' equality with the Father uh, within the Trinity. And I say uh, similarly that we can see this in terms of both the economic and the ontological trinity. The economic, uh, what God does, in that Jesus was sent to earth to reveal the Father. Shown in Hebrews 1.3, among other places, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. This was uh, one of the functions 
that Jesus uh, assumed as he was sent to earth. And the verse displays the ontological trinity, what God is, in that to see Jesus is to see the Father. To know Jesus is to know the Father. Jesus is God. The Father is God. Jesus and the Father are the one God along with the Holy Spirit, of course. But with all that as uh, delicious theology, uh, circling back uh, to where we started about the Pharisees' phenomenal missing uh, of the, the phenomenal declaration of Jesus in front of them. The Pharisees and the Jews at large accepted the Father, accepted Yahweh, or as modern Jews would say, Adonai or Hashem. And here is his son, the second person of the Trinity, who reveals this Father, this Yahweh, to them. If you knew me, you would know my Father also, Jesus says in verse 19. He stands there right in front of them, very God, the creator of all things, the uncreated one, the source of all things, certainly the source of light and life. Yet they reject him, or at the very best, they think of Jesus just in human terms, and hence they ask where his earthly father was. Perhaps we have to assume they understand him in, in human terms, at least at this point, uh, because if they understood what he was actually saying and nonetheless continued to reject uh, who he is, uh, surely they would have picked up stones uh, at this point and gone to stone him as they did later on, uh, rather than delaying the same. But as I, I remember saying in the, uh, the very introductory portion of the whole John series, uh, think about what's happening here. Uh, this is Jesus, a man, uh, in that sense, much like me, a man standing in front of these people. Uh, and he says, if you know me, you know the Father. If we think of, of Jesus merely as J-E-S-U-S on the, on the pages of Scripture, uh, we can sort of uh, abstract ourselves from that reality. But if we try and think of him merely, sorry, not merely, uh, if we try and think of him as a man, similar to how there are many men uh, within this body, the, the notion of what he is saying uh, has a whole lot more weight. It causes us to ri rise, raise our eyebrows a whole lot more. Think about a man standing in front of you saying, if you know me, you know my Father, this Father being God, the eternal and created one. If you know me, you know God. Surely, if I were to say that to you uh, and mean that I was referring to myself, Tobias, I hope you would pick up stones or perhaps your chairs and throw them at me. But no mere man can do this, not even close. No mere man can reveal the Father. At best, we are those created in his image, and so we reflect some of his own glory back to him. But no mere man can say, if you know me, you know the Father God. Only God can reveal God. If we know God, we know God. Jesus is equal with God because he is God. He can reveal God because he is God. A simple statement and yet, once again, uh, quite profound. So the last point, don't be like the Pharisees. Understand who the source of light and life is. 
So to conclude, let me give you the four points once again, just by way of reminding. Firstly, don't be like the Pharisees. Follow the source of light and life. Secondly, don't be like the Pharisees. Humble yourself under the source of light and life. You won't catch him out on an errant technicality. Thirdly, don't be like the Pharisees. Judge in accordance with the source of light and life. And lastly, as I just gave to you, don't be like the Pharisees. Understand who the source of light and life is. We say, don't be like the Pharisees, uh, not merely to rag on them, but in order that we might obey God and glorify him. What's more, uh, what benefit there is to us if we do follow this source of light and life, humble ourselves under him, judge in accordance with his ways, and understand who he is. In short, what great benefits uh, there is for us who follow Jesus, such complete uh, and undeserved benefits. Let me pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you once again for the opportunity to, to delve into a text in more depth. Lord, please help us, uh, certainly over Sunday, to do such things. And Lord, also uh, in our, our times of devotion throughout the week. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that you sent Jesus, the living word. Uh, and we have so much of what he did and what he said recorded for us, such as even what we've been through today. Thank you also uh, that you have the, the continual witness in this world, Lord, your Holy Spirit. And I pray that we who profess to know you uh, would move on to, to ever and ever close intimacy with you, moving from milk to meat and being those who, uh, in our words, in our actions, and in what we don't do, uh, demonstrate those who, uh, who truly love you, who humble ourselves under you, who understand who you are and live in accordance with such an understanding. Lord, glorify your name uh, through each member of this body, I ask. In Jesus' name, amen.